Welcome to The Power of Change, the podcast that discusses everything from clean tech to modern business and the power of change as we navigate through unprecedented times. I'm Jason Gravel, founder of Origin Energy, a company that helps people save money and lower their environmental footprint. The one thing about this pandemic is that it has forced us to face who we really are. We've been forced to confront our imperfections and pull back the facade we're used to fronting. Early in the pandemic, when we first started working over video conference platforms like Zoom, there were viral videos circulating of people accidentally leaving their cameras on when going to the washroom while in a meeting. There was that viral video of a lawyer that couldn't turn off the cat face filter. I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. And more recently, a Canadian politician accidentally appeared nude in front of a House committee. We're so used to hiding behind a suit or dress clothes because it's culture or etiquette. Why is our natural state so obscene? Why can't society just accept who we are? I've talked a lot about starting over, but the experience of starting over has really brought into focus how society is uncomfortable with change. And I think that's the fundamental reason why people with mental health have such a hard time starting over. Because we as a society don't accept our own humanity. We're most comfortable holding up the veil. And when that veil falls, it's considered obscene. Those people are considered obscene and they're cast away. So today you're going to hear stories about society and the funny and weird things that make us special and human. Some are experiences I had working in social services and healthcare. Ultimately, none of these stories are meant to make fun. They're meant to help us face the places we've come to fear the most, help us come to terms with our shortcomings, and accept who we are. One thing about working shift work is that your life becomes out of sync with the rest of the world. It's amazing how hard it becomes to find the time to do everyday things like go to medical appointments. On your weekends, you end up being awake when none of your family or friends are. Those who work regular 9-to-5 jobs probably take for granted the simple things like having a beer after work on Friday. Early on in my career, I was working in a supportive housing program. It was a beautiful summer in Vancouver. It was that time of year when people were traveling and visiting. I had a roommate at the time, and I got off work on my Friday. I was feeling good because I had the weekend ahead of me. I decided to crack a beer and play video games, as many would after work, on a Friday. My roommate had family in town from up north, and they had stopped in to pick him up before they headed out for a day of touring around Vancouver. Except my roommate's cousin confronted him and was like, Why is your roommate drinking beer at 8am on a Wednesday morning? What can I say? It was after work on my Friday. I was going to bed soon. Good thing I didn't have kids at that point. I could have been walking them out to the bus in my robe with a beer in my hand. On the flip side, when you want to do things with your friends, you just have to deal with the fact that you're tired and you haven't slept for extended periods of time. Years ago, when I first met my wife, I had hopped on my bike and rode from Vancouver to Victoria to meet her when she was there on a short work trip. I met up with her, we went to dinner, I crashed in her hotel room, 
and I had been working a long stretch of overnight shifts, so that night I didn't sleep well because my body had become so used to being up at night. I had heard that it was a beautiful campus, and it was known for being overrun with little bunnies, and I had always wanted to check it out. So in the morning, I rode up to the campus with her. I was going to walk around, have a look at the campus, explore Victoria, and call her at the end of the day. I'd meet up with her somewhere downtown. The campus was really nice. There were thousands of bunnies all across the grass and bald eagles in the trees everywhere. If you've never spent any time on the BC coast, there's something special about the humidity in the air and the smell of the ocean and the giant trees. The summers are amazing. You have to put up with the rain and darkness for what seems like an eternity, but once the rainy season passes, the air warms up to a perfect 22 degrees with not a cloud in the sky for three or four months. After walking around checking things out for a bit, I realized how tired I was. So I laid down in the grass under a tree amidst a pile of bunnies and relaxed there for a while. It turns out I was so tired, I fell asleep. I literally woke up five hours later, around 2.30 in the afternoon. I barely had a look around the campus when I was dropped off at 9am. I woke up to realize I fell asleep in the grass in what was now a high traffic area right in front of the entrance of a main building. And there were hundreds of students buzzing about walking by literally feet from where I slept. And apparently, even in my deep sleep, I had the wherewithal to move over and follow the shade under the tree. When I stood up, I realized my phone was gone. It must have fallen out of the pocket of my shorts while I was moving around to follow the shade, and someone must have picked it up. It wasn't in the grass anywhere. And worse, I didn't know my then-girlfriend's phone number. We'd only been dating for a week or two, so it was saved in my phone. Heck, it's been more than 10 years at this point and she hasn't memorized my cell number. So at this point, I had no way of getting in touch with her and I didn't even know where our hotel was. After stumbling around for a little while, I realized my only option was to go talk to the client she was visiting on campus. So here I was all disheveled and disoriented, the guy that was literally just sleeping in the front lawn for hours, approaching this travel agency in the student union building going, um, Kate, uh, was here this morning. She's my girlfriend and I lost my phone, so I don't have her number. Can you give it to me? And she actually gave it to me. And I think if I were in her shoes, I wouldn't have given it to me. I ended up spending some more time on campus having a look around. And later on, I hopped on a bus heading downtown. I called her from a payphone and we met up. Needless to say, I've never forgotten her number since. But... Believe it or not, she's never bothered to learn mine. The last job I worked in in healthcare before I changed careers was at a psychiatric unit for difficult-to-treat psychosis. It was a unit where doctors sent people when they couldn't figure out how to manage their mental health symptoms. Most patients had severe cases of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorders. But sometimes specialists on the units would find undiagnosed brain tumors or other organic reasons for their mental health symptoms. I remember one patient was found to have a disorder that prevented his body from metabolizing copper. So the metal would deposit around his body causing cognitive issues and hallucinations. I remember you could even see the copper around his pupils. Working there was definitely an interesting experience for a lot of reasons. There was also another a patient who regularly came to stay on the unit. He had been in the system for a long time, so he was more of an institutionalized patient. 
He knew the routine. It was just kind of his life. He was in his early 60s, scruffy. He was always in a flannel shirt. He wheeled himself around in a wheelchair because he was missing his leg from the knee down for reasons I can't remember. At lunch, he'd always take half of his sandwich, drop it in the front pocket of his flannel shirt, and wheel himself outside to smoke cigarettes. He'd slowly feed half his sandwich to the resident squirrel that he named Basil. Whenever he'd talk, he'd speak in incoherent sentences. And I always thought that he was trying to say things that were racist, but they never made any sense. Most of his ramblings were related to race. He was a white guy, so it always felt like he was trying to say things that were inappropriate. And it always made you feel uncomfortable. He'd regularly repeat, why did the French government make black babies white? And even if you asked why, he'd answer with a completely unrelated statement. One afternoon, he approached the nursing station with a plain white legal-sized envelope and asked the nurse if she could mail it for him. She had a look at it, and it was addressed to the Health Department Africa. That's all it said, with no return address. Knowing him, when you see an envelope addressed like that, it would always make you feel uncomfortable. Later on, the nurse opened the envelope and there were two lonely $5 bills sealed inside. To this day, I wonder what he was trying to say, or what he thought about on a day-to-day -day basis. I guess I'll never know. New Year's can be a turning point for many of us. It can be an attempt to turn a corner and commit to a new path in life. I guess one day, leading into the end of the year, the recreational therapist thought talking about New Year's resolutions would be a good way for her patients to set goals and ambitions. So she sat down with the patients and had them trace out hands on paper. She had them write their New Year's resolutions on their paper hands and neatly decorate them. After they were done, they'd post them up on the wall in the common area for everyone to see. It was a good idea. Maybe then they would walk by and be reminded of the things that they want to work towards. And other patients and staff could see their aspirations and encourage them along. Later that day, I came into work, and at the start of my shift, as I always did, I was walking around, checking in on everyone and saying hi. I happened to come across the resolutions the patients had neatly put up. Of course, a psychosis unit is the one place in the world where the concept of positive change can be completely flipped on its head. One of the patients had written that her New Year's resolution was to start smoking. That was her sincere intent and not a mistake, as if it were so hard to start smoking, especially when society's collective New Year's resolution is burnt up by trying to quit smoking. That unit was definitely an interesting place to work. Almost 10 years ago, me and a friend of mine packed up our bicycles and rode them from Vancouver all the way to Tijuana, Mexico. We did it over a month to give us plenty of time to visit places along the way all the way down the coast. It was an amazing experience and it makes you realize just how small the world really is. Halfway through our trip, we had made it close to Eureka, California. We had found a campsite just north of the city. We pitched our tents and headed into town to eat dinner. While we were out, we met a local, had a few drinks to celebrate our journey, but for some reason, either from being dehydrated, from biking all day, or from being exhausted, the drinks hit us hard. The next morning, when we emerged from our tents in the burning sun, we were peering through the fog of the worst hangovers we'd ever had in our lives. 
we were in no condition to continue riding. So we hopped on a local bus to check out the sights. We were sitting in the front seats of the bus that were inward facing towards everyone else. While I sat, I watched people hop on and off. In that moment, I realized that public transit can really highlight the socioeconomic divide. And it became clear to me that the United States is really a fragmented place. There was a young couple sitting in one of the front-facing seats off to my right. They were holding a baby between them. The young woman was slouching down in her seat, holding the baby and laying on the guy's shoulder. She had big, dark sunglasses on. To me, they didn't seem well. The bus came to a stop. A guy in his mid-30s climbed aboard with his daughter and sat in the front. It was one of those chatty people on the bus that quickly had the front of the bus talking. He was talking about living in Oakland and how rough it was, about his difficult relationship with his 15-year-old daughter. And all of a sudden, his attention darted over to the young couple with the baby, and he said, I saw you guys on the bus earlier. Your baby was throwing up. Is he okay? The guy with the baby leaned forward in his seat. He came up and out of his slouch. He had pale and thin skin draping over his cheekbones. He had an urban-style ball cap on the top of his head with the brim pointed way up. His eyes were bulbous, like a bobblehead, and his pupils were literally floating around in his head. As he started to speak, his face leaned in further, and as his mouth opened, his eyes closed. His eyes stayed closed as he began to speak. God dang, kid. Woke himself up in the morning and hate himself a half pack of cigarettes. And in that moment, my fog broke and I was immediately overcome with laughter, but not because it was funny. It was a nervous laughter. I just couldn't make sense of what was happening. His presentation was so bizarre and what he was saying made me sick to my stomach. He kept his eyes closed when he spoke. And being an addictions counselor, I knew there was enough nicotine in three cigarettes to kill an adult, let alone an infant. And again, being an addictions counselor, it looked to me that they were using substances last night. My gut told me that they probably overslept and the baby woke up hungry. I sat there in the seat with my discomfort bubbling up into laughter. After a brief pause, he looked at me and yelled, It's not funny! I truly didn't think it was funny. I just felt so uneasy because all I can think of is, Your kid needs to be in a hospital. But apparently, they were just on their way back from their doctor's office. That's so strange to me, because here in Canada, there is no doubt in my mind that the baby would have been admitted into the hospital and at least observed for a few hours. But I guess that's the difference about the United States, is that access to healthcare is so poor and is so expensive. What made me feel so uneasy is I couldn't help but feel like I was staring into the heart of what makes American society so awful. And I don't mean them. I mean, of course, if things had truly unfolded as I thought they did, then they definitely didn't make great choices if they had a young infant. But I don't think they made those choices because they were bad people. I think that some people in society have so little compared to many others that all they have left is what seems like poor choices. And I think that's what I realized in that moment that made me so uncomfortable. Some years ago, I was working in another supportive housing building in Vancouver's downtown east side. And for those who aren't familiar with the area, it's a rough neighborhood similar to LA's Skid Row. It's very poor, lots of people living on the streets, lots of open drug use and mental health. 
This housing building I was working in was pretty run down. It was ridden with bed bugs, and apparently, not long before I started working there, there was an incident where the Vancouver police shot and killed a man wielding a knife inside this building. It was sort of a temporary arrangement. The organization who ran it was temporarily housing people there so they can renovate another one of their buildings. Because of the condition of the building, it was weird to be in there, and I have to admit some of the clients that lived there were intimidating. Every day there was one client that would literally pace the same 20 meters of hallway. He'd pace from the time he woke up in the morning till the time he went to bed, short of stopping to eat. Back and forth, back and forth. It was an old wooden building, and all day you would hear the floor creak under his feet as he paced. Somehow his pacing was meditative. And for him, I think it kept him in check, and he knew it. And the only time I'd ever see him leave the building is when he'd relapse. And what's so strange about the downtown east side is that people would use whatever they could get their hands on. And I remember him coming back after one of the few times he left, and he had been sniffing shaving cream all day. I cannot begin to describe the smell that emanates from someone after they've been sniffing shaving cream all day. But the downtown east side isn't just about mental health and addiction. It's a part of the city sectioned off to hide the city's undesirables, so tourists and the business elites wouldn't have to face the enormity of the problem on a day-to-day basis. Vancouver had what they called downtown ambassadors that businesses in nicer areas could call to shoo away homeless people. The legend that circulated among people who worked down there was that the downtown east side was started as a sort of social experiment. I never looked into it to see if it was true, because I was afraid of what the answer was. One thing that I do know is that Los Angeles' skid row was set up to contain the undesirables. So that municipal planning mindset did exist. People would often refer to the downtown east side as Canada's poorest postal code. What always struck me when people would say that is, that Canada's supposed poorest postal code was very close to some of Canada's wealthiest postal codes. And I don't think that was a coincidence. But I digress. This client would pace back and forth, back and forth all day. He was a mean-looking mother effer. Like a hardcore biker. He was big, he was bald, he was covered in tattoos from head to toe. Literally speaking. He had tattoos covering his face and all over his bald head. He even had tattoos on his forehead. And if you were new there and you rounded a corner to see him coming toward you, you'd be terrified. But if you knew him, you'd know better, because you'd come around the corner and walk up to him, and his tough demeter would drop just like that. He'd light up. His eyes would get big and his smile would spread out across his face. And with a high-pitched, delighted voice, he'd say, Hi, Jason. How are you doing today? It was almost cartoonish. He was so friendly and so personable, it was so surreal. There was such a disconnect between how he'd present to you and who he really was. He was one of the sweetest people I ever worked with down there. I know we've always heard that we can't judge a book by its cover, but I don't know if we really consider that when we encounter different people over the course of our day-to-day lives, especially those with mental health and addiction that have been left behind by society. Maybe we need an app to help remind us of that.
The summer before I went to college, long before I worked in social services, I was working overnight shifts doing maintenance at a community center in my hometown. So this was long before I had any real experience with mental health. One morning after work, I made my way home at about 8am in the morning. I lived on the top floor of an old house that had been converted into rental units. There was only one small stairwell leading up to all three units. Mine was a small studio apartment in the attic that had been converted. When I pulled into my driveway, I remembered it was garbage day. I ran upstairs, grabbed all the garbage from my apartment, and dragged everything out to the street. As I was making my way back upstairs, I could hear the sound of an acoustic guitar playing a broken and out-of-tune version of Radiohead's fake plastic trees echoing down the stairwell from my apartment. I didn't live with anyone. How could anyone be playing music in my apartment? I was just up there and there was no one in my place. It just didn't make any sense to me. And a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a long time was sitting on a chair at my kitchen table playing my guitar. I was like, how did you get in here? Apparently he had showed up and knocked at my door at 6am. And when he realized I wasn't at home, he knocked on the door in the suite below and asked to bump cigarettes. Apparently, he talked his way in and hung out in their apartment until he heard me come home. I could tell something was off. He told me he'd been up all night and he was talking a mile a minute. I couldn't calm him down. With no idea what to do, I had him hop in my truck and we went for a drive. And I guess I thought it would help him calm down and eventually I would just drop him off at home. After driving some country roads for a few hours, we came back into town. He didn't seem like he was calming down. If anything, he seemed like he was more talkative than ever. He was talking about all kinds of big things that were happening, and apparently he was even landing a record deal. It was now after 11am, and we happened to be passing by our local adult entertainment club, and I noticed that it was just opening up. In that moment, I thought maybe if I can get him to focus on something, he'd calm down. So thinking on my feet, I pulled into the parking lot, and quickly we went in and sat down. The first thing I realize is that a strip club is surprisingly busy at lunch during the week. But then the very next thing I realize is that exposing him to attractive ladies wasn't helping my cause. His charm and his talkativeness meant that he was quickly befriending all of the women in the place. Eventually I just snuck out and left him there because he seemed happy, and he was having a good time with everyone he just met. Over the next few weeks I would bump into him around town and he'd be hanging out with the women he met at the club. But his charm and adventures quickly came to an end. Apparently he had been running up tabs at pubs and bars all around town. Next time I saw him after that, I was visiting him as an inpatient at the local psychiatric hospital. He was in a unit that I actually ended up working in several years later. It turns out he was bipolar and he was having a manic episode. Things seemed a little off, probably only because I knew him and I had a reference point. It's amazing how charismatic a person can be when they're in a state like that. It always reminds me of how Jim Carrey is so public about his bipolar diagnosis. Maybe we don't see him at his worst, but I feel like he harnesses his mania and channels it into the many amazing characters he portrays. I remember hanging out with this friend after his stay at the hospital and talking to him about how I felt that people who have mental health are just different it just happened to not fit into the norms of society. This was long before I learned anything about mental health and psychology. 
But now, almost 20 years later, after having studied it and having a lot of experience with it, I still think I believe that. More and more, research is finding that there is a genetic component that determines what symptoms a person may experience, but the onset and perpetuation of mental health symptoms is caused by social marginalization. My therapist has often said to me that mental health is just a normal reaction to abnormal situations. I couldn't agree more. So I think the question is then, how do we do away with these abnormal situations? It's so hard to describe the feeling you have the next morning after working an overnight shift. Even when you've been on the same overnight shift for weeks or months and your body's used to it, it's still weird to be awake in the morning when the sun is coming up. It's weird to be riding the bus sitting next to people who have their coffee in hand making their way to work. It's almost a dreamlike feeling, and I guess it makes sense that it feels weird. Your body isn't expecting to see the sun come up before you're set to go to sleep. Your sleep cycle or your circadian rhythm is triggered by light. The light wakes you up, it stimulates you into waking up even if you're supposed to be going to sleep. It's a surreal feeling. One morning as I was getting off work in the downtown east side, on my way out I was passing by Oppenheimer Park, which is known for being the center of it all in Vancouver's downtown east side. The park is usually filled with encampments. At times there can even be several hundred tents and makeshift homes in a plot that's only the size of one city block. There's lots of open drug use and lots of people milling around. It was a bright and early summer morning. Not a cloud in the sky, and you can tell it was going to be a nice day. But it was right at that point in the morning when the air was crisp and cool. There was dew on the grass, there was a light mist of fog low in the air that was just starting to burn off. I exited the building and headed east towards the sun. It was just above the horizon, just above the road, and between the buildings blinding me as I walked towards it. The people milling about in the park and on the sidewalk were silhouettes in the fog in front of the sun. As I walked, I noticed a guy shuffling towards me. He was scruffy and unkempt. He had clearly just emerged from one of the camps. As he got closer, I could slowly see his face emerge from the dark of the shadow and he had a big smile across his face. He seemed so happy to be alive. It didn't matter where he was sleeping, it didn't matter where he was, he was just there in this beautiful morning. And all of a sudden he looked up and spread out his hands and belted, Sweet Caroline, good times never seem so good. My name is Frederick Fernandez. If you might have guessed from my name, I'm a person of color. And here's a relevancy. When I hear voices from the darkness, my mind wanders and thinks of a cheesy subtitle to a fantasy movie or a video game. Instead, what I got is vignettes of hilarious and or sobering experiences from my podcast partner through his time as a social worker. Undoubtedly, like any vocation, it has its own set of pros and cons. And as someone unfamiliar with that career, and through the lens of someone who worked in the thick of it, 
there are many things I relate to, and at the same time, far removed from. I find myself relating to Jason's experience in many ways than one. Like him, my demeanor gravitates towards cracking a laugh when faced with awkward, tense, or uncomfortable situations. To me, it is my defense mechanism, and for no other reason than it's in my nature, it's how I deal with discomfort. To me, these collections of stories touch on certain topics that I feel is less explored during daily conversations, especially if your day-to-day does not deal with social or mental health. And although my current occupation does not cross paths with mental health or outlier thinking, being a person of color has me dealing with different voices from the darkness. These narratives have me thinking about mental and social health and how similar they can be to an ethnic person facing xenophobic attitudes. As an ethnically Filipino, Canadian-born citizen, I know better than what I am. Despite this, I have encountered alienations that many others like me have faced. As a young child growing up in this multicultural society, teaching cultural tolerance and openness was more like a product of institutional liability than genuine encouraged behavior, at least to me. I was taught that As a person of color, there were certain ways I had to function in this society to get ahead, let alone not be left behind. It was not written out or plainly told to us, but it was definitely there. Everything from your skin, language, and status played a factor. And like everything else in this world, some people learn, grow, and understand the ramifications of these actions, and some others do not. Fast forward to now. Violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders is at a peak in recent years. And from what? Rhetoric of a failed president as he childishly addresses the global pandemic as a China virus? This is spurring many cases of violent harassment, assaults, and even deaths amongst many Canadian and American citizens. And obviously, this is not new. The baton of racial hatred gets passed from race to race until a new target is repainted. Even so, As minorities, we comply and roll with these punches out of necessity. Skin, language, status all play a factor. How can I relate my personal stints of racism with Jason's experiences and the voices from the darkness? It's possible because if I put myself in the shoes of him or his clients, I can sense and feel that judgment. It is judgment of being different and oftentimes by no control of that person themselves. It is sometimes illness, sometimes poor personal judgment. Maybe it was out of their control. Maybe it was mistakenly brought upon themselves. Still, I can relate to that feeling, regardless of what brought that person there. And the lesson I've learned from reading about these experiences is tolerance. Tolerance is something that should be practiced. When facing someone who is different from you, how can we judge them when no context is given? As I feel myself putting up guards and walls, my empathetic self soothes and calms. My rational brain should think, gather information, make better judgments. Not too soon, not too late. Like drinking beer at 10 a.m. Context makes it make sense. The ideas of voices from the darkness, or as I like to think about it, talking about things you don't want to talk about but probably should, are conversations that should be had if not for the laughs but at least for the lessons imbued. Despite that, the levity of humor and its innate ability presents heavy topics in a digestible way and is something not to shy away from. 
Of course, to me, it is my personal defense mechanism and the comedic part of my nature. But the way it allows people to form particularly dark topics is undeniable. I want to believe that finding humor in situations is a superpower, but I understand the other side of that coin. I think laughing with versus laughing at is the obvious answer, but again, it's not that obvious. When I hear racist comments thrown at, past, or along me, I can't help but laugh in the face of it. Sure, it is hurtful, and of course, it is not right. But reacting and recognizing that pain in the face of the assailant gives them that win. Instead, and perhaps in this unique instance, I will laugh at them. My personal win. I understand that bullies gain power from the victim's reactions. Laugh at them. Laugh with them. Finally, I would put myself in their shoes and try to understand why. And it doesn't take long before I do. It's pity. It's a damn shame. It is regrets that they have never gotten invited to one of my family's parties. At the end of the day, my hope is that they get to experience the warmth, love, and hospitality of someone who is different from them. And that's my takeaway from the Voices of Darkness, understanding and relating my personal journey with the journey of my podcast colleague. We should all have more tolerance to things we do not understand, the voices of people who have been cast away into the darkness. We should try to understand the context. We should be understanding of the people we seem to judge. Because when we find our comedic side and laugh at ourselves, we can all laugh with each other. To learn more about how you can save money and lower your environmental footprint, visit originenergy.ca. Remember, you can always leave us an audio message by visiting anchor.fm slash originpoc. We'll definitely include interesting messages in future episodes. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for helping us power brighter communities.